The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. It's totally super time. T-O-T-A-L-L. Why? Well, because we're practicing social distancing, and frankly, what else do we have to do? This is Totally Super. (laughs) Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are reviewing uh, 1994's Jim Carrey, dare we say classic, The Mask. Uh, And um, I'm excited about this one. Um, this is a film that that has lots of thoughts, lots of meanings for me. Um, uh, and let's just dive right in. I guess before we dive right in, um, uh, we were recording this on March 20th now, and this is the first show uh, that we've done since the the big social distancing stuff has started. Um, we When you are hearing our Justice League, podcast uh and then you'll be hearing this so by the time you hear this it will be nearly three weeks since we recorded so possibly we're in the zombie apocalypse when you're hearing this so this is a little time capsule uh going back in time to good old march 20th before the zombies came uh and this is uh the calm before the storm next week we'll be reviewing uh we're reviewing marvel zombies i guess is is what we're gonna yeah. be doing next uh, you know we're going through world war z walking dead you know that whole i know thing. Well, welcome to the totally zombie podcast where we review every i mean honestly if we made. wanted to you know we we could choose to be very hopeful about the future and review demolition man um ooh, holy crap that was a great idea that's a really good idea I, I, I don't know if that qualifies as a superhero film well i mean technically it no less qualifies as a superhero film than the movie that we're reviewing right now. So I guess we could, we we could make a case. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, so let's talk about it. Um, uh, the mask, um, was a comic that I was vaguely aware of actually before the movie even came out. Uh, I Mm -hmm. started collecting comics when I was in fifth grade and was brought into it, uh, by a kid who lived down the street who not only collected Marvel comics, but also collected, Flaming Carrot comics, the old Mystery Men comic, like like you know, Strike Force Maturi, um, all these all these independent comics in addition to his love of the X Men, and one of those comics uh, was the Mask. Um, uh, the Mask is uh, is based on this comic from Dark Horse. He first appeared uh, in um, as in September 1987. Dark Horse presents number ten. Uh, and then as Big Head in Mayhem number one in May 1989, um, and then just became the mask. The a much more sinister sort of super anti-hero character, much more in line with uh, with Lobo, I guess is a uh, is is sort of a way that you might sort of think of him. Um, he mm-hmm. is uh, he is not this sort of funny singing dancing fun. This is uh, this is very much um, a, a sort of a, a dark character that has been turned into something else for this movie. Um, but it was absolutely comic, and I think you know if 
if there was a Lobo movie one day, we would have to do it, right? So I mean, as as much well, as, I, as much as is, anything else, I honestly I have to. So or before we get into anything else, then it really I ask then. So is our metric for what is a superhero movie just was there a comic book made of it, and or does the character have superpowers? Because and we'll talk about it later. I'm a hard pressed to really think of anything heroic about this character. Um, it like he even has a speech that he says to himself. He's like, I could use these superpowers to do all this good and everything like that and then he immediately afterwards goes and robs a bank well like, yeah um but look it's so is so, anything- so that's the thing like look look obviously we've we've reviewed films about anti-heroes before um you know and i well, think the very first film we by, did the very by the very, very loose criteria that we have of a superhero film a superhero movies whatever we say it is darn it because we want to review it then yes this film absolutely follows that i don't know if this is a hero movie though or like i i like there are there are certainly more strict uh, guidelines by what defines a superhero movie that I do not believe this movie would stand up to. And yet, I would say that this movie follows the exact same structure as every other superhero origin story movie that we get. Um, uh, I would say that it is based on a comic book. I would say it's a, a guy who has uh, powers. I would say Stanley Ipkiss certainly becomes uh, more heroic as the movie goes on. Um, I like he is no less heroic than any character except for maybe Penny in Dr. Horrible, which is the first one that we did. One could say that he's more heroic than the crow. Um, he is, uh, about as heroic as kick-ass, I guess. I mean, it's certainly the, the, well, he the, has the thing super- is, is all of those that no. the crow set out with a, the crow had a, uh, you know, had a very specific mission. Uh, kick-ass had a very specific mission. Kick-ass specifically said, I want to be a superhero. Uh, look, the idea of somebody who is kind of a nebbish, um, or uncertain of themselves, finding themselves in a situation that is suddenly way more intense than they ever expected expected to and having to find themselves in it. I mean, yes, that is a classic sort of metaphorical coming of age story. Um, you know, and it's just sort of, but so the question is, do you take that and does that automatically become a superhero story if you just give powers to it? Um, because this, you could almost, you could almost look at this, you could almost look at this as like a comic version of, you know, a film like, and follow me on this, uh, a comic vision, a comic version of a film like the firm or the Pelican brief or anything by Elmore Lennon. Leonard or Carl Hyacin, uh, which is about just sort of normal people suddenly, oh my gosh, there's this whole crime conspiracy and I wasn't trained to handle this sort of thing, but I'm going to. So it's that story, except now you just add on, oh, but now I have this device that gives me the special ability. Um, now, maybe by some definitions, that might actually be all you need for us. It certainly is enough for a super powered story. Um, but again, it comes back to the age old question is, what is it that makes a superhero? Is it just the powers or... Um, you know, or is it something more? But we well, could go think, around in circles on that. Well, I, I it's interesting you should say it because I think that um, there might be a difference between what what constitutes a, a superhero and what constitutes constitutes a superhero movie. Um, there is hmm. there, when you have diagnostic manuals for certain diseases where you have to um, diagnose them sort of conditionally, um, as opposed to like having a you know like for instance right now coronavirus. You know, if you you can get a test for it. And go. This is this is tests positive, and we know for a fact it's this. Then there are people who come in and go. Okay, well, if you have six of these twenty symptoms at this level of severity, then it qualifies 
Um, and maybe it doesn't hit all 20 of the symptoms. But I think mm-hmm. that that you can kind of do the same thing. You know, this is a superhero movie because it smells like one. I guess is the best way to, to say it. Okay. But like, we are going to have to, have to eventually do Joker. Joker must be on our list. Um, he is neither super nor is he a hero. But Joker is a huge part of the superhero mythos. And we kind of have to do it because it's part of it's part of the mythos um Mm -hmm. now when we get you know do we do road to perdition which is a comic book but it's not a super i don't know if we'll ever do that one um and then there are movies where where you know movies like super where they are just regular people they don't have powers it's a it's a commentary it's not even like kick-ass it's a commentary on superhero culture but it, it by no means if it weren't called super, we might not even think of it. So, I mean, I think we're going to have to go on a case by case basis. But I think, I think in the in that diagnostic manual, like has a you know is from a comic book is a huge one, and then has superpowers is another huge one. So, if you have a popular mm-hmm. comic book with a character who has superpowers, I think that immediately qualifies you as a superhero story. So there you have mine. it, everyone. From Justin's mouth, the mask is the COVID nineteen of superhero stories. <laughs> That's my takeaway. I wonder if we're going to come down very differently on this film. This is really interesting. I, I'm, yeah, I, anyway, it, I, let me put this out there. You and I have not discussed this film either before all. or yeah. immediately after, other than I texted you and I said, ah, I really liked it. Um, mm-hmm. And and the we had a, like a small version of the conversation we just had, like, is this a superhero movie? Okay, let's just do it. Um, I have mm-hmm. no idea if you liked it, hated it, um, and whether you were a fan to start with. I don't know how you feel. I don't remember what you said about Jim Carrey in, in Batman Forever. I have no idea where we're going. This is this is exciting for me. I mm-hmm. like this. Um, let's talk real quick. Uh, Tale of the Tape. Oh, by the way, um, this is a small movie. Um, there aren't huge things to say about it. We're not splitting this one into two. Because um, no. there's just there's just, just not that no. much to say about the mask. It is what it is. Um, what it is is a movie that was released on July 29th, 1994. It runs 101 minutes. Its budget was only 23 million dollars, which is crazy to me. That's mm-hmm. like that's like. And yes, it was it was in 1994 and 1994 dollars. But you look at other movies that are budgeted around this, and like this is like a small romantic comedy has this budget. Yeah. So I am, I I got to give it for a budget. Well, that's didn't it nothing. win? Didn't it win some awards both for makeup and even for special effects? Like because uh, 1994 it, CGI was still kind of in its infancy. Yeah, we are we are just a, a little bit of t- actually. Why don't I do this? Let me go down. Um, and see what awards it got. Um, do, do, do. I don't see any reward. Oh, it was nominated for best visual effects, but lost to Forrest Gump, which I kind of understand. Forrest mm-hmm. Gump was doing something pretty cool. Um, yeah. And so I, I'll give it to, because you had a guy with no legs. You had him shaking hands with mm-hmm. JFK. I mean, it, it, so I will give it to that. Which at the um, time, which at the time was mind blowing. Yeah. Well, but this was too a little bit. This was so, because mm-hmm. the thing about these effects is these effects still hold up today, which is really they interesting do. because surprisingly, because, because they said, okay, all we can do is make things look cartoony. All right. It's like somebody figured out we can only do cartoony looking effects for cheap. 
how do we make that work? Mm-hmm. And well, that's kind and, of the uh, that reminds me of it's called the I've heard people call it the World of Warcraft approach. Um, and that is in the world of computer gaming. Uh, you know, the it was generally considered for a long time that your end goal was just bigger and better graphics always and make those graphics, you know, as realistic as you can. You know, you wanted shadow effects and light particles and uh, and all of that, which meant, unfortunately, that in order to run, even today, to run like the most up-to-date, uh, most current games, you need a pretty strong computer to do it. Um, but then when massively uh, multiplayer online games came out, World of Warcraft being a big notable one, uh, you ran into this issue of, in order for us to keep this thing alive, we need millions of people playing it constantly, uh, but we don't know if millions of people are going to have this level of computer, and then also how do we deal with the fact that we need to eventually scale it over time and all of that, and uh, the folks at Blizzard with World of Warcraft said, okay, we are not going to try to make it realistic, we're going to try to just make it a very stylized particular, uh, the, the overall tone of it has a very particular branding to it, but it is not uh, very resource intensive for a computer to run, which means that you still have these beautiful, beautiful uh, landscapes and scenes in this game, but because they're not trying to be realistic, because they're just trying to fit one particular tone, uh, it's both beautiful and easy for just about any computer to run. Uh, So I guess the corollary with this would be they knew that they had a small budget, but because they said, like you said, let's just be cartoony with it, they were able to do a whole lot with that budget. Yeah, um, and and what they got for that twenty-three million dollar budget was a box office of three hundred fifty-one point six million dollars. Good God! Yeah, um, it made like fifteen times its budget. That's nuts. Mm-hmm. Now keep in mind the budget for the mask was twenty-three million dollars, and by the time you got to the cable guy, which is just two and a half years later, Jim Carrey's paycheck was twenty million dollars. Yeah. So so we are catching Jim. Carrie, um, let's before we get to Carrie, because I think we need to get to him here, because I don't think we're going to get a chance to get to him uh, anywhere else. Um, we before we do like kick ass, kick ass two one day, which I don't think we've done yet. Um, we, we, we've already co- we've already covered kick ass two. Oh, we did. Oh, so we did kick ass two yeah. and we covered him in Batman forever. This is it for for his superhero for a yeah, until we so until this, we get to Sonic. Yeah. Um, do we do Sonic? That's a real that's an interesting. OK, question. if we do if we do the if we do the mask, we do Sonic. But Sonic's a, is, is clearly a video game movie. That's interesting. And oh, I'll I'm sorry. It. Can video games not involve superheroes? I and Sonic actually had a long life in comics, a huge life in comics. I dare say mm-hmm. there are more Sonic comics than there are mask comics. That's an let's interesting. See, let, let, let's see. Su- let's see. Superpowers check. Fighting against a villain to save the world check. Like huge I'm, comic I'm, I'm deliberately. Run, I'm, I'm, de- I'm deliberately being. Uh, I'm deliberately being argumentative on it and everything. It's mostly fun, but I, yeah, no, I think Sonic would be a fun one to do. I dug Sonic, by the way. There's spoiler alert for Sonic. I I dug it. I thought it was pretty fun. Um, uh, this movie, one of the reasons it was so low budget is maybe because the director, uh, uh, Chuck Russell, um, who is a low budget uh, director, he did uh, in his later career, uh, he did The Scorpion King, he directed an episode of Fringe. Um, he did a movie called I Am Wrath with John Travolta, um, and they, now he's doing Indian movies. But uh, he did Eraser with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. But prior to The Mask, he did the remake of The Blob in 1988. He wrote Dreamscape, 
which I love, and then went from Dreamscape to the most Dreamscape movie you can, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which is accepted by many as the best of the Elm Street films. Um, Mm -hmm. And was, interestingly enough, maybe is going to be on my list for for movies that can be qualified as a superhero film, is Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Because essentially, they all dream themselves up superpowers and attack Freddy Avenger style. Um, it doesn't work out for them, but that's what they that's what they do. So he goes from that, makes the blob, and here he is making the mask. And he is, you know, if you watch anything about Nightmare on Elm Street 3, for instance, it's a movie that looks, Nightmare 3 looks like a big movie if you watch it for what they were able to do. It's got effects. It's got, it's, it's got animatronics, puppeteering, sets. Um, a huge cast, including people who became very famous, like Lawrence Fishburne and and Patricia Arquette. It's got Oscar winners in its cast. Um, it's got this. It's just this big film, and that movie cost five million dollars to make. And if you read about the ways that they were doing it, like literally, if you were to move the the frame of film that you're watching like a quarter inch to the left, you would see the seams of what they're shooting. They made every mm-hmm. single dollar count, and that's what this guy is able to do. So he makes this movie for twenty three million dollars. He pulls Jim Carrey, who is coming right off his his I don't want to say his big screen debut because it was not. But Jim Carrey was in Earth Girls Are Easy. Jim Carrey was in Peggy Sue Got Married. Jim Carrey was in um, Jim Carrey was in a movie called High Strung. Jim Carrey had been in Once Bitten. These are, with the exception of High Strung, these are all movies that I saw before Jim Carrey showed up. And I Once Bitten, he's the star of, and I remembered. Um, you know, Peggy Sue Got Married. He's Nicolas Cage's best friend. So like. If if you watch mm-hmm. it, it's like he's there and he's doing Jim Carrey stuff in that movie. We all knew him from In Living Color. Um, had, did you see Ace Ventura: Pet Detective in the theaters? Um, I don't think I. I don't think I saw it in the theaters. No. Did you see this? But in I the did theaters. see Ace. No, I. I saw this last night for the first time. Yeah. What? What? Oh, see, this is why I'm so excited about this. You're just gonna hit me with this stuff. You can't just say that. I need a. I need a. A, a drink. That's nuts. I, I think First I just time. Did just say that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, you can't. Um, wow. Okay. Um, so I I swore off Ace Ventura because it looks stupid. Now, I didn't want to see stupid Ace. You know, uh, he's got hair. But I and I kind of remember Jim Carrey as the the white male character actor from In Living Color, and that's all I really knew or thought of him as. Um, so not having seen Ace Ventura, this was my introduction to Jim Carrey, which was a huge part of my life as an actor and as a person. I had to learn to imitate Jim Carrey to expand my horizons, then learn to discard that to learn how to actually act. Um, but he was a huge part of, of my evolution. Um, I saw it in the theaters in 1994. 1994 was my senior year of high school. So this was the months immediately after my senior year of high school. Arthur, knowing me personally and all the stories I've told you about that time, you know who I probably saw it with. Um, uh, I It was a very, very important film to me personally. And then, of course, it was one of the biggest hits when DVD first like appeared. It was like one of the first ones that came out. So this is a film that I've seen ton. Um, and I loved it. I turned around and I loved, I, I loved Ace Ventura. And then I, I dug and have seen almost everything Jim Carrey has ever made ever since. So this was a film that at the time I first saw it was even important to me because of the personal stuff that went along with it. So what was your 
first, how do I even ask you what your first impression, tell me what, under what circumstances did you watch? Did you watch it by yourself? Was, was, was Mrs. Mrs. A with you? What, what was going on? Yeah, no, I, I threw it on last night. I just, uh, um, Kelly was doing some, uh, some chores around the house. And so, and I said, Hey, I've got to watch this film for the, uh, podcast we're doing tomorrow. So she said, okay. And so I threw it on and watched it. Um, what is it? What, what is your overall opinion of Jim Carrey? Uh, overall, I very much like Jim Carrey. I love his overall body of work. Um, I mean, he is, if, if I had to define 90s comedy in microcosm, I feel like he is, he is one of the pinnacles of comedy in the 90s. Uh, and some of that still actually holds up. Like, here's the thing. I laughed out loud several times during the film last night. Um, this is a, this film is a tremendous showcase for his work, uh, for his comedic styling. Uh, and I think he does, he does an excellent job in that. Like, I loved Jim Carrey in this film. Uh, all of the actual mask scenes I thought were an absolute delight. Uh, everything else I have other thoughts about, but in terms of standout moments and set pieces involving Jim Carrey acting as this character, uh, there's a lot of re- there's a lot of moments, um, at least scene by scene, uh, where things get knocked out of the park. I, I I say Jim Carrey as a whole, yeah, his most of his his work continues to stand up. Um, and I feel like I'm hoping Sonic brings him into sort of a second renaissance. I would love to see this guy in his, you know, now fifties, uh, continuing to continue to entertain us. So I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I hope that we get more comic book movies from him. That would be fun. Um, so, uh, we talked about how much it made and when we made it and what's going on making it. Um, uh, I think it's time, sir. Uh, can we please have a plot for the mask? All right. Plot of the mask. Stanley Ipkiss, an insecure bank clerk working at the local edge city bank is frequently ridiculed by everyone around him, except for his co-worker and best friend Charlie. Meanwhile, gangster Dorian Tyrell, owner of the Coco Bongo nightclub, plots to overthrow his boss, Nico. One day, Dorian sends his dazzling singer-girlfriend, Tina Carlisle, into Stanley's bank to record its layout, in preparation for a robbery. Stanley is attracted to Tina, and she seems to reciprocate, but unable to enter the Coco Bongo to watch Tina perform later that night, Stanley wanders dejected near the city's harbor, where he finds a wooden mask. Placing it on his face transforms him into a green-faced, zoot-suited trickster known as The Mask, who is able to cartoonishly alter himself and his surroundings at will. As The Mask, Stanley indulges in a comical rampage through the city, humiliating several of his tormentors. The next morning, Stanley encounters Detective Lieutenant Mitch Calloway and newspaper reporter Peggy Brandt, both of whom are investigating The Mask's activity of the previous night. To obtain the funds necessary to attend Tina's performance, he again dons The Mask and raids the bank, inadvertently foiling Dorian's bank heist in the process. At the Coco Bongo, Stanley dances exuberantly with Tina, whom he ends up kissing. Following a confrontation with Dorian for disrupting the robbery and stealing his girlfriend, Stanley flees, leaving behind a scrap of cloth from his suit, which is later found by Detective Mitch Kellaway. Dorian and his men are arrested by Kellaway and his partner Doyle. Based on the piece of cloth, which has reverted to a piece of Stanley's distinctive pajamas, Kelly Kellaway suspects Stanley to be the bank robber. Stanley later consults a psychiatrist, played by none other than Ben Stein, who has recently published a book on masks, and discovers that the object may in fact be a mask of Loki, the Norse god of darkness and mischief. 
Who? The same night. Never heard of Stanley him. Meet, yeah, right? Stanley meets Tina at a local park as the mask, but the meeting is interrupted by Kellaway, who attempts to capture him. Stanley flees with Peggy, but only after distracting the police and nearby civilians with a mass performance of the Desi Arnaz song Cuban Pete. Peggy then betrays Stanley to Dorian for a 50000 bounty. Incidentally, it's interesting that Dorian has gotten out of jail with no explanation after his arrest the previous night. Using the mask, Dorian becomes a malevolent green-faced monster. Dorian's henchmen force Stanley to reveal the location of the stolen money and then turn him over to the police. When Tina visits Stanley in the police station, he urges her to flee the city. Tina thanks Stanley for showing her kindness and warmth that she wasn't used to and tells him he didn't need the nat mask to be special to her. She attempts to leave the city, but is captured by Dorian's men and forcibly taken to a charity ball at the Coco Bongo, hosted by Nico and attended by the city's elite, including Mayor Tilton. Upon arrival, the masked Dorian kills Nico and prepares to destroy both the club and Tina with dynamite. Milo, Stanley's dog, helps Stanley escape from the station by retrieving the keys from a guard. Stanley then takes Kellaway hostage in a desperate attempt to stop Dorian. After locking Kellaway in his car, Stanley enters the club and manages to enlist the help of Charlie, but is soon after discovered and captured. Tina tricks Dorian into taking off the mask, which is recovered and donned by none other than Milo. Milo the dog battles his way through Dorian's men as Stanley fights Tyrell alone. After recovering the mask, Stanley uses its powers to rescue Tina, swallowing the bomb and flushing Dorian down the drain of the club's ornamental fountain. The police arrive and arrest the remaining henchmen. Kellaway attempts to arrest Stanley once again, but Mayor Tilton tells Kellaway to release him, claiming that Dorian has been the original mask. As the sun rises the following day, all charges against Stanley are dropped. Not wanting to get involved with the police again, Stanley decides to discard the mask at the harbor. Tina throws the mask into the water as she and Stanley start to make out. Charlie then jumps in the water to retrieve the mask for himself, only to find Milo swimming away with it. Fiend. So, when you put it that way, <laughs> it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, it does not. Uh, it's like, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that... This can be said for a lot of 90s I mean, comedies. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing that I noticed as I was putting the plot together. Um, technically, the usual definition for the protagonist is somebody who has a clear goal at the beginning of the film, who tries to achieve that goal throughout the film, and then the culmination of the story is whether or not they achieve that goal. Based on that, like, in terms of the person who has the strongest goal and, you know, and journey in terms of achieving that goal, technically you could make a case for Dorian Tyrell being the protagonist of the film in a twisted way you you because could. i did, I did is, this this film this film it didn't need to this film dedicates a lot of screen time to what's going on in dorian's life that has nothing to do with stanley ipkiss that's true you didn't need to see dorian and nico you really didn't need nico frankly you didn't need um, nico uh yeah i i agree with you there is there is a subsection though of of fiction that has you know person has things happen to them as True. part of the like you know somebody who gets you know, I I would dare say that you 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 get a goal when st- when stuff starts happening to you certainly Stanley Ipkiss you know when he's thrust into the situation is now has to claw himself out of the trouble that the mask is causing for him and you know you can mm-hmm. put the mask you know you can supplant the mask with any number of of things like Beethoven in the Beethoven movies or like like or or drop you know drop dead Fred when drop dead Fred shows up in in that movie like it's it's mm-hmm. you can have the movie where someone is thrust into a situation and their goal is to get out of said situation mm-hmm. um that being said you know the the fact that he is also 
Well, Jim Carrey movies are like this, right? Is this not like with the exception of Ace Ventura? This is the essentially the plot of like five Jim Carrey movies. Jim Carrey is a, a down on his luck loser who, through circumstances that he he doesn't understand, um, or or if not down on his luck, he's he's a loser for one reason or another for circumstances that he doesn't quite understand. Something magical or psychological happens to him um, where he takes on a second persona and that second persona starts destroying the main persona's life till then the main persona turns around and um, and fixes it, right? That's this, that's Liar Liar, well, that, that's, that's certainly Me, the, Myself, and that, Irene. Yeah, that's, that's the yes, plot man. of uh, Me, Myself, and Irene. Yeah, and 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 Liar Liar and Yes Man. Um, like it's just like something happens where where this new version of himself sort of... The, so it's, it's really interesting. Back in... In 1995, immediately after this movie came out, before I started really just imitating Jim Carrey, which I did for like six months, it was bizarre. It was a very strange choice that I made. Um, but in the midst of sort of a a bit of a psychological breakdown I was having, I decided I was going to go goth. I was going to be a goth kid. Um, I dyed my hair black, wore nothing but black, wore a big long black trench coat, got an earring that hung down to my shoulder. Um, and I did all this stuff um, to try to process stuff that was going on for me and this is sort of that taken to its extreme i feel like like take putting on a a second persona that is bigger and stronger than actual you so you don't have to deal with you and then it's, eventually to me it's actually not that it's not actually about putting on a second persona it's about um and they talk about this and actually this is the one area in which i'm like oh this is actually this there's a very adult theme a very grown-up theme that is explored in this and that is essentially the question of what would we any of us do if we didn't have the uh if we didn't have the voice in our head saying oh doing that would be a bad idea because the you know there's been a lot of psychology psycho- Psychological studies done about the id and the ego. Uh, you know, essentially the the id is our, uh, you know, it's our just, you know, you can call it your primal desires. It's the, I want this. And then the ego is the thing telling you, oh, going after that would be a bad idea. Now, sometimes the ego is telling you that out of just straight up wisdom. Sometimes it's telling you that out of fear. Frequently, it's telling you that out of fear. So there is a, there are a number of stories uh, because it is a very, very common wishful fulfillment dream for so many people, not just kids, but adults of what would I be able to do if I turned off that ego voice and just became fearless? Yes, there is a tremendous dark side to that. Um, You know, when you stop considering the consequences of your actions, by definition, you stop considering the consequences of your actions on other people. However, uh, the the appeal of 100% total confidence and how powerful that makes you regardless of whether or not you have superpowers is incredibly intense um i mean in many ways this film is it shows off and this was such a theme in the 90s of the nice guy versus the bad boy uh now thankfully in the past 20 years you know our thoughts on the matter you know in general have evolved to the point where we realize oh wait a minute the people who thought they were nice guys maybe there was maybe we weren't actually that nice or at the very least we weren't necessarily good um 
and, you know, because of course in the 90s, I'm sure, Justin, you might have said this. I certainly did at this time for, you know, which I regret. But the there's like, oh, God, women are just so into bad boys all the time. But it's not because that they were bad. It's because they had the confidence of a rampant id. Uh, and it's interesting that this film really explores that. I don't know if I 100, I mean, it it has a very, very heavy handed resolution of that. But it, as I was watching, I was thinking I would love, actually really love to remake this film now. Forget about the, the cops and all of that, or you forget about the cops and the, the robbers and all that, but really make it more about an in-depth exploration of somebody wrestling with those warring forces in themselves. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, a, there are a couple of very nice scenes that do explore this. Uh, uh, right before Amy Asbach turn, turns around and, and reveals herself to be, you know, just in it for the money, um, she has this scene where he's like, the, where Jim Carrey says, the mask is everything about me that, that I wish I was. And it's ruining my life. And it's a nice bit of acting from him in a movie where mm-hmm. even a Stanley Ipkiss, he tends to overact just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's it's a moment of, of tenderness where you go, if you let this completely rule you, then you are if you let this completely rule you, rule you then you are going to ruin your life. Um, I do think there's been a, a flip in recent years to to, you know, the the nice guy who who is like, like, I'm so nice. Won't you go out with me? I'm so I've been friend zoned. OK, you effing B word. You know, the, yeah. And the, you know, the, the anger, mm-hmm. the rage that turns on when they are finally rejected because they feel like they are somehow entitled um, yeah. to uh, to attention, particularly sexual attention. Um, and that's where you get um, these these incels uh, sort of come from that. Um, so I think that you. I think that you you do. That's one of the problematic. I'm I guess let, let's just flip the let's flip the script and go. Uh, let's talk characters at the end, um, and let's have our big discussion now since we're here. And I don't want to mm-hmm. let, let's let it work organically. Um, there are problematic aspects of uh, in this film, and the most prob- problematic aspect I would say is the relationship between men and women in this film. The way women are treated mm-hmm. and the way the nice guy is idealized in this film. Um, it's a it's a wish fulfillment fantasy for nice guys. Yeah, and and here, you know a question could be: Is Stanley Ipkiss a nice guy, especially when he's in the middle part of the film? Um, is you know it's is Richard Jenny's character the the other version of a nice guy that that is the bad version? And and how do we deal with um you know? Well, I guess that's the first question: Is is Stanley Ipkiss in this film a nice guy that would still be considered to be a nice guy today? I think so. I mean, the there's in that there was not much of his dialogue or anything that uh, that spoke to that sense of entitlement that uh that really is part of the toxicity of you know of nice guy idealization. Um, no, he just I mean honestly he just struck me as a just an average dude who was just um you know he's incredibly incredibly fearful. Uh. But I, some of the, some of the, the catchphrases of the nineties, uh, nice guys, uh, I did not see him saying, I did see a lot of people say other people in the, in the movie saying them about him. Um, but that's not necessarily him being those things. Yeah, I agree with you. I think he is actually a nice guy. Jim Carrey based the performance. Um, we'll talk I guess about Ipkiss in a moment, but he based the performance on his own dad who was sort of like had just struggled with his own confidence throughout his life. So he, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting thing. I think that, 
that while he is a nice guy, I feel like the film presents a negative message to nice guys of the 90s, which is which is hang in there, just be nice. And that hot girl who likes the bad guy is going to turn around and eventually like you just because you're nice. Just keep being yeah. nice and she'll be yours. That's, it does. It sets yours. up a it does set a pretty unreasonable expectation. Yeah. Um, or any expectation. Yeah, that's true. And, that, and honestly, and she will and she will like you for no other reason than that. Eh, you're just a nice guy, not yeah, because of anything else that you might bring to the table other than that. And really, by nice guy, all we mean is treating them in a way that is not incredibly douchey. Yeah, because like, yeah, while, while yeah, it, Stanley Lampkiss is a nice guy, she doesn't she doesn't she doesn't know anything about how he is anywhere else in his life all she knows is that he's not a monster yeah exactly it's like if if the it's saying that okay so all you need to do is be somebody who doesn't completely insult and demean women and they will love you for it yeah who treats me as a human being not as a party favor as she says Mm -hmm. that's all it takes yeah um yeah uh, what do you think about the way the, the the film treats women? What do you think about women? I in mean, this I'll film? be honest. The, like, the, we could. It, we, we're not doing a two parter on this. I mean, on the one hand, we could spend an an hour talking about all of the problematic issues in this film, sp- specifically in how it treats women, violence towards women, sexualization of women, all of those things. Um, but we could do that with a lot of films of the 90s. Um, I, for me, I'll just sum it up, my feeling of it, as I was watching it. Uh, it was the scene where uh, um, where Cameron Diaz finds herself surrounded by all the gangsters, and then her gangster boyfriend comes up and shoves her against a wall and, you know, and threatens her. And I was sitting there watching it, and Kelly was there watching it, and I turned it, I was just like, gosh, you know, it's astonishing realizing that if we saw this 20 years ago, if I saw it 20 years ago, I wouldn't bat an eye at this scene. And Kelly, actually, she said, you know, the freaky thing is I wouldn't bat an eye at it either. Like, I think this this film is a very good example to see, oh, my gosh, we really have come a long way. Um, still got a long way to go. But, uh, um, you know, I, I never want to completely excuse a film as a product of its time. But at the same time, it's like this is this film, like many others of its era, uh, has just a ton of problematic issues in it. Yeah, that scene didn't bother me um, because it's a bad guy who's doing in it um yes i think now that scene plays much darker um but even at the time it, i feel like that scene is supposed to bother you i feel like that scene is supposed to be you know a problem my issue is um is the way that you know the fact is that there are evil powerful men and evil powerful men um can it seems just based on what i see um attract uh beautiful women who are, I don't know if the word is content, but willing to allow themselves to be personally sidelined because of proximity to wealth or proximity to power. Um, that is something that you all you have to do is turn on the news and you will see that this is this is the case. Um, and that is a story that is an interesting story, I think, to tell. And I think that minus other things, watching her sitting there in the room when she's, you know, you know, we're essentially, she's sort of playing the, the sexed up Diane Keaton role from the Godfather, where she is sitting there watching the, all the stuff go down and she's uncomfortable with it, but it's just part of what she has determined her lot in life is right now, but she wants to escape it. All of that. I'm, I'm down with hearing that story in a modern version of the mask. I would like to see a story where someone gets into that world and then escapes from that world as being part of it. The problem is, is that the film wants us to at the same time 
enjoy the ogling of her as well. Mm-hmm. And and I am okay. We've talked about before equal opportunity sexualization, right? Um, so if you have a movie like, you know, like Spring Breakers or you have a movie like what's the 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 one that just came out about women who like got made their own like strip club. Um where it's it's a, a woman that of a, 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 sorry a movie that all at once shows you empowered women choosing to allow themselves to be ogled at um or even if they are for lack of a better term non-player characters that are you know there just to be there i'm less okay with that but it doesn't it doesn't make me as comfortable as this where it's the film is saying isn't it awful that she has to sit there and be eye candy to this guy and also look at the lovely eye candy Mm -hmm. and i think that is where you put those two things together and in the 90s is you know at the time i didn't mind watching beautiful cameron diaz dance in a little tiny skirt and the camera you know the, the camera likes ogling her and i don't have a problem with stanley ipkiss also ogling her but now this time around i was like god i'm both i and richard Jen- jenny and the mask maybe less so stanley we are all dorian now we've all mm-hmm. become dorian and so it's I the was, uh, it's interesting the the message behind a story like this one uh really is it's not the message is not objectifying women is bad what makes it good or bad is whose object is she if she's the object of somebody who treats her well then it's okay that's essentially the message that we've got from this well i think that that's and i don't think that i don't think that's a good message um no oh no I, no that's a horrible message that's a, that's a terrible message <laughs> but it's the message that um, is essentially being said yeah and i think that that the I never got a sense of that she particularly enjoyed going out there and being ogled while she's singing. Um, she just talks about being a party favor. She talks about how much it sucks. And then you go out there and every time you see her being sexualized in the movie, she is working for Dorian. Think about that. Every time she's out there singing in the little skirt, flirting with everybody, even in the bank where she's coming in all wet and the camera's looking down her, her, her dress, she's working for Dorian. She's in hell and we're enjoying it. And that is a different story than, you know, than a character who, let's say, chooses to dress sexy because it makes them feel sexy or even chooses to be a stripper because like, hey, you know what? This is what they they've chosen to. It's not that at all. It is you're literally watching someone in a form of slavery doing their slavery things. And and the and the camera is encouraging you, the viewer, to enjoy it. And I think that it's a, you know, it's a how okay we were with it at the time is is problematic. And I think it's fixable. I think a single scene of her going going when I when I'm out there singing and dancing, it's the only time I really feel free. Done. I'm okay then. I'm I'm much better. I'm not hundred percent better, but I feel much better than I than I did before. Or you see now I'm thinking that it would be a a great remake of this would be because the thing that you describe you know uh, say uh, you know for a woman uh, if you want to call it trapped in that kind of situation um, have a story about somebody like that and make her the one who finds the mask then you've got a real that would be awesome yeah yeah that, that would be real awesome and you know it's it's hard again you know what what's the song that you're always seeing like two white males are gonna be woke you know that's like yeah like you're you know I I think that that it's so hard for us in in our position especially you know we are subconsciously 
affected by the fact that we grew up in this time. So I don't even know how much of me is what I'm choosing to be and how much of me is my programming. Mm -hmm. But there is, you know, it's really hard to even talk about this to go on one hand, I I want I don't think it's right to all go women. And on the other hand, does that mean that anyone who's out there stripping, I am now slut shaming? You know, I, I don't, you know, I, it's hard to make well, sure it's, that it's, it's a rich, I most mean, of the time we the need end to of the day, It's always it. a rich tapestry. Yeah. Um, but I, the, uh, I, I don't, th- there are no, if there were easy answers, um, to this kind of thing, society would have figured it out by now. Um, yeah. um the, but I will I, say I one uh, thing. It's ahead, easy. I guess that. before I, I'll let you say your part in a minute, but I, I, I would say it's, if there were easy right answers, um, that would be true. But I think there are easy wrong answers. And unfortunately I feel like this film has the, it's easy to say the wrong answer. This is not this yes. is not the way to handle it. Good try, not going to work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, but, I, I will mean, say I let's like get we're, let's we're damning, we're damning to, the film a lot in the talk, but I really like it. Props, props to them for perpetuating the idea that a strong, powerful man is also a very good dancer. You know what? It <laughs> yes. is is a good Cuban Latin dancer that um, you know that's that's a plus. Um, and I do let, the, the one thing I will say the going back to the whole id versus ego. There is one moment uh, in the movie where I was like, I think they actually. They, they got the psychology right. Uh, and that's when Stanley is talking to uh, to Ben Stein's character and he's saying, okay, just tell me, I've got to meet her at the park tonight. Do I go as Stanley or do I go as the mask? And Ben Stein essentially says, you go as both. Like psychologically speaking, it's about finding the balance between having the confidence to act on your desires while at the same time having the overthought to be able to analyze what the consequences of those desires would be. Especially um, you know, as that impact other people. That's yeah. And, that you know, that's the holy grail of mental health that we're really all striving towards um, is, uh, is is confidence paired with wisdom. Um, real quick, let's go through the characters. Um, we'll go in backwards uh, order. Mm-hmm. Richard Jenny as the funny best friend um, uh, I think is again in in a modern version of the character he would be even slimier and also even more likable um, and then mm-hmm. you would find out you'd find out his dysfunction like three quarters of the way through the movie mm-hmm. um, in this as a character that doesn't change he's perfectly adequate um, Richard Jenny's sad story of course um, uh, ended his life uh, uh, later I believe um, uh, want to make sure that I uh, yeah, I've, yeah, he 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 killed himself uh, later on, which is you know. Sad. It I'm makes sorry, me sad I, just, I, I, I don't I don't know if that's ever happened. But if if those specific words have ever been said before, let's see. Uba doo Yeah, he killed himself. I didn't mean to. That's that's terrible. Now I I, I, I didn't know, and I was looking it up because I didn't want to like no, say to- that. Totally, and totally, yeah. Um, uh, uh, I liked, uh, I liked him in this. I was sad to hear that this happened because I, I dug his character in this. I found him to be a likable presence, um, as, as a cad. Um, again, I would love to see a modern mm-hmm. version where as a cad, a very likable, friendly get, cad. Yeah. I, I don't want to see him get his comeuppance, but I want to find out why he is the way he is and see him arc a little more. Um, mm-hmm. Amy Yazbek, um, uh, the late wife, uh, uh, or, or rather the wife of the, the widow of the late John Ritter, uh, an actress that I've liked every time that I've seen, seen her mostly on wings. Um, but I feel like she's the other woman in this. And of course she's willing to bat her eyes and say that she's in love in order to get money. And she's just like, it's, it's, it's a trope that I think is, is as tired as any other trope in this. Mm-hmm. And given that there are only two, I mean, women it in the is, whole film, it gives her, I mean, it's, it makes her two dimensional instead of one dimensional, but yes, it's still a trope. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, w- women are either to be sexualized or not trusted. 
Um, but certainly they can't, they cannot be, you know, altruistically out to just survive in this big, tough world. Um, uh, I feel like Dorian, like anything to say about Dorian? Uh, your classic really? 90s gangster. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. um, I, I will say this uh, about all the, I love the 90s styles in this. All the all the bad guys oh have like lo- long, st- long permed hair down to their back. And all the, or all the bankers with their particular like with that jacket and weird ties. And yeah, it's a uh, man. Yeah, the one bad guy to, with the shaved head 90s. and then the, the and then the bun in the back. Yeah. Um, oh, God, it's, this it's, was such a 90s film. So it's specifically a, a mid '90s film. This is not a 1990, yeah. nor is this a '99 film. This is specifically '93 mm-hmm. to '95 in terms of yeah. in terms of style. Um, uh, Cameron Diaz. Okay, so Cameron Diaz. The it is interesting. I loved how the the credits at the beginning and they said and introducing Cameron Diaz. Uh, this was, if not her first film, her first major film. And you know, look for everything we say about you know objectification and all that aside. Um, I don't know if I can think of a star um, who has been given, especially somebody who has made a career as being an attractive star, uh, to be given a better and introducing scene than, I mean, people have, t- like, there, there have been other shows that have talked about Cameron Diaz entering the bank as one of the most explosive uh, introductions to an actress on the big screen that people have seen. Um, and I have always liked Cameron Diaz. The uh, She's able, and even in this, She's able to take a one-dimensional character and at least play it, you know, believably and likably. Um, th- I have liked her in other films far more than in this, but that's because she's just got more to work with. I feel like I feel like she did every perfect move to become a star starting in the '90s. You start off as as uh, as she's super sultry, sexy, but she's also cute, and then you follow it up by not only is she cute, but she's also funny with something, something about, Mary. about Mary and then you yeah. know, not only is she funny but she can also voice act in, in Shrek and you go not only can she act but she can act in ways that really impress you like in Any Given Sunday and she and then, like, can, and like, then she can kick ass like she does in Charlie's Angels yeah so like so what they do is they like like every time they, she says hi I'm one thing and sort of this other thing and the next movie mm-hmm. the sort of this other thing is her main thing where she's also sort of this other thing and then she oh, just and shows the, and, and it just keeps going on but that's a really good way of putting yeah, it yeah yeah, yeah when I've you put it her that being, way she's got a she's got a lot of depth she she has done a ton of different kind of roles i think she's brilliant in any given sunday I think oh, she she's is phenomenal if, in that. Um, I, she just shows that she she's got absolutely no um, empathy as a character, who, as a person who always exudes empathy uh, to play a mm-hmm. character with no empathy is is nuts. She's I think that she is a, um, a, a an incredible actress. Um, yeah. And I think that like it and I have such respect for her that she um, she retired. She was like done. Oh, she did. She, I guess you're uh, right. Yeah, she um uh she like took like made like quit for a little bit, and then uh and then she did Annie uh was was as Miss Hannigan in in 2014 and then she said that she was tired of traveling for filming and then in march she said yeah i've retired from acting okay and she's she she just says i don't really need to do it anymore and now she just is into activism and stuff um which is incredible i have have a ton a ton of respect for her for going that way uh finally jim carrey as stanley ipicus what can we say that we haven't already been said um yeah i'll say this we just pointed out all the problems with this film why do i love this film so much because i do i really liked it and i'll 
I'll talk about it when we get there, but it's on his shoulders. People go, 100%. oh, he just makes big faces. No, he acts in this film. He dances. What a good dancer this guy is. Mm-hmm. What a really well, good dancer this guy it's, is. It, the thing is, is the everyone thinks about, they think about, oh, he makes big faces. But the thing about comedy, um, when you think, of, oh, Jim Carrey is funny because he makes big faces, that kind of goes with the idea of, oh, comedy is about being huge. But really, but really, really good comedy is about being specific. And even in Jim Carrey's physical actions. Um, It's not just that he kicks his leg out. It's that he does it in a way that isolates particular limbs at a certain time. Like, his physical acting is a metaphor for his overall style, which is that yes, it's huge, but it is incredibly precise at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's, there's, it's, it's, it's like gymnastics. Um, It's a little exhausting to watch sometimes. Uh, but mm-hmm. it is, um, I can't tell you sometimes where the CG starts and where the prosthetic starts and where it's just him. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the vocal choices, the, the imitations in the middle of it, the, uh, the everything that he is just, um, he is a force and this is about yeah. watching him be this that force. And that's mostly what these, like both this and Ace Ventura back to back and every scene he has is the Riddler. Dumb and Dumber is a different, is, is sort of a different animal. Um, but the scenes that they give him to just go, hey, watch this guy. This guy is a special effect. And I like it. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love, and, and I also want to say that I played this CD was in rotation for like 10 years for me. I wore it out and the, I bought the, it a second the music? time. Yeah. Um, I wore it out and bought it a second time. I love sort of the hip hop big band uh, whole thing that was happening right this around was, that time. I was, th- I was trying to remember when did the big band swing thing happen. It was really more towards the late 90s, but this it was around this time, 1994 when, like at least in DC uh, all of a sudden th- there was that swing dancing group that met at the Spanish Ballroom out in Glen Echo. Like the, we were, I think Swing Kids came out about this time too. Like we were just mm. starting to see the beginnings of that. And it, it didn't last for too long, maybe less than 10 years. But suddenly the massive resurgence of swing and big band and, you know, when we hit Zoot Suit Riot in the late 90s and and all that. Yeah, no, this was this this was uh, a, a tour de force for that reason. We'll talk about that when we get to the very end. Um, so I guess, uh, I, I guess on a scale of one to five mask covered dogs, love that dog. Um, what would you give the mask, sir? So, um, based on, so here's the thing, Jim Carrey, phenomenal. The makeup, the visual effects, really, really great. Not only for the time, but they hold up the costuming. Um, like you said, I, it's, if I had to choose a film that's, that's to show to somebody to say, if you want to know what the fashions were of 1994, watch this film, but then also it they had you know the costumes evoked all of those old style zoot suit things like there were so many elements of this that were really wonderfully creative uh the plot was terrible uh the character development was weak at best um and uh and there were a whole ton of problematic elements to it um so i would say when this if i were watching this when it came out as 1990s me i would have given this a four um however this film uh in a lot of its story and characters and everything does not age nearly as well as even other films of the 90s did. Um, so at the end, I would probably give this, um, I would have it fall to 
a three when all is said and done. And if it were not for Jim Carrey, if it, if, it, if it were not for Jim Carrey and some of the other amazing uh, visual aspects of this film, this film would have been a two, possibly a 1.5. Sure. And, and you know, I know we say that we're going to review every superhero movie ever made. Um, you and I need to have some conversations behind the scenes about how we deal with uh, with superhero sequels that we just don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> because there is Son of the Mask and the three sequels to The Crow and there's 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 a lot of of bad movies that we're going to have to um and I don't want to save them all to the end wouldn't that suck like we do this podcast like till we finally get through most of them and then our last like 15 podcasts are just terrible well here's um, the thing we so say we're, we're go- we say we're going we say we're going to review every superhero movie ma- ever made we don't say that we're going to spend one episode on every movie but we have to necessarily at least one of us has to watch them um well, I don't yes, want to watch that. I don't want to watch Son of the Mask um, uh, uh, preview for I, Son of the I, Mask. I, which honestly, won't... I think our I think our dear listeners would probably give us a pass because let's be honest, I can't imagine a world in which I, if I can't imagine a world in which I want to see Son of the Mask, I certainly can't imagine a world in which I want to listen to two guys talk about the critical aspects of Son of the Mask. How about this? I will like, promise you guys at some point in the next two years we will have a a bad sequel show. Um, yeah. where where we come in and we talk about uh. Uh, maybe maybe you you have three that you have to watch over the course of a couple months. I have three that I have to watch, and then mm-hmm. we turn around we'll share and, the load. and yeah yeah yeah. So um, speaking of the load, Son of the Mask uh, um, has a budget of four times as much and makes fifty nine million dollars. Um, yeah, with with Jamie Kennedy taking over for Jim Carrey sounds awesome. So the question oh, is, yeah. what is this movie without Jim Carrey? Maybe it is Son of the Mask, although I don't think so. And I'll I'll tell you this. Um, instead of saying, what would I think of the 90s versus now? If I were to, and you say, what if you take away Jim Carrey? If I were to take away the problem, problematic elements of the film, minus the plot, this film is a 4.5. Minus mm-hmm. the, the, if you take away the problematic, I don't care about how perfunctory the plot is, how it goes from place to place. I don't care about the, how the character development doesn't happen. It takes me from set piece to set piece. I care about Stanley. Stanley. I, I care about, um, about what happens in the film. I enjoy everything Jim Carrey does. I think the music is great. I think the dancing is great. And, you know, the effects, the fact that we can see the effects hold up now, 26 years later, is nuts. And at the time, they were incredible. I loved them. So I want to full on say this movie is a 4.5 for me, um, was at the time and would be today, if not for the problematic elements. But I got to say that that for a film that centers around the story of the nice guy getting the hot girl because he doesn't treat her like garbage and that all he needs to that's all he needs to do it gets dinged for the portrayal of for for the for the male gaze being upon a character who is out there being forced to put herself under the male gaze by a monster um and yet we are encouraged to partake in this and never made to feel deliberately uncomfortable. The film never says, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Um, mm-hmm. Also um, problematic for uh, for the other things that you describe problematic. 
Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to give it a 3.5, um, and 2.5 of that. Like Jim, like Ace Ventura Pet Detective is solely Jim Carrey. And yeah, I love the film. I think, I think a, a film that says we are giving you Jim Carrey and then successfully gives you Jim Carrey is almost an instant three. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a film that says we're giving you Jim Carrey and then you don't get it. I'm looking at you, Mr. Popper's Penguins. That's a, that's, that is a disappointment. This film sells me on Jim Carrey and gives him to me three. Um, I want to say a 4.5. I'm going to bring it down 3.5 because you just, some of these things need to be excised from, from the way that we mm-hmm. think about gender relations. So that's 100%. It. Um, uh, so, um, again, don't know what's coming up next. I would, uh, I would love to hit another, um, a film everybody knows, but a film maybe someone hasn't thought about, uh, for a while. Um, uh, I, do we count Demolition Man? Does Demolition Man have any kind of, well, I'm going to do it right here. This is fun. This is called Totally Super Google Stuff. Um, oh, no, because then we let, no, then that locks us in with something. The, uh, um, but yeah, I, I like the idea of continue, like, so we, we just did the Zack Snyder saga. Um, I like the idea of let's spend some time on films that, yeah, films that lots of people have seen. So not like sleeper indies, but at the same time, but that, that don't immediately come to your mind when you think, oh, superhero film. So um, Demolition Man was not a comic. So we're going to have to talk more uh, behind the scenes as to what counts and what we will do. But we'll do a couple mm-hmm. more of these. And then um, and then coming up uh, in superhero news, uh, they because of the coronavirus stuff going on right now, um, they are going to be re- releasing uh, the Harley Quinn movie uh, months earlier. It's going to be released like in four days as the time of this oh, recording wow. by the time you're listening. By the time you're listening, it's already going to have been released. Um, we are still waiting for Suicide Squad to come out to do the the Harley Quinn trilogy for you but um but a lot of stuff coming a lot of stuff that we need to talk about so uh stay tuned uh big films small films old films new films totally super is the place to be uh, but for now my name is justin and my name is arthur and hey there true believers stay inside guys don't go outside yeah, seriously don't go inside out yeah, be safe be safe it's yeah. more super inside Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 